Howdy, partner, and welcome to Tom Hanks Giving, the only irritable bowel syndrome singles weekend meetup Tom Hanks podcast. I'm your host, Elvis, and today's special guest is... Elliot Campos. Hey, Elliot. How's it going? Hey, it's going good. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I don't think we've talked about a movie since Bride Wars. Wow. It has been a long time since that long, long ago podcast, uh, The Splotcast. Bride Wars was our last one, but we're here to talk about Tom Hanks in The Lady Killers, 2004's uh, Coen Brothers film, um, starring, of course, Tom Hanks, Irma P. Hall, Marlon Wayans, J.K. Simmons, Zai Ma, Ryan Hurst, and a bunch of other funny and recognizable faces. It uh, opened and is kind of regarded as the worst Coen Brothers movie. What do you? How do you feel about that? Well, the Coen Brothers with their movies like The Big Lebowski or uh, Burn After Reading, a lot of their movies, they don't care that much about structure. They'll just kind of go off on uh, what feel like improvisational riffs. And with this one, they're actually adhering pretty rigidly to the structure of a movie that came out like 50 years earlier. I feel like it would be less harshly judged if it weren't a Coen Brothers film. This one isn't even mentioned in the discussion of the Coen Brothers' work, you know? I mean, whenever you see Coen Brothers, you see Fargo, Blood Simple, uh, Big Lebowski. No Country for Old Men. No for Old Men. This one is just like it came out and then it just was thrown into the vault and... Nobody dares speak its name. Because of that, I actually f had forgotten it was a Coen Brothers movie until I was watching it, and it was like very obvious, like, oh, this is this totally reads as a Coen Brothers film with the choices of how it was directed and the camera and everything. I read online that Barry Sonnenfeld had been developing the project initially. He was going to direct it, and then the Coen Brothers were hired to write it. And then Sonnenfeld fell away, and the Coen brothers kind of stepped up to be the director. So I think this is more of a film that the Coen brothers kind of backed into, you mm -hmm. know, where it's just, you know, once Guillermo del Toro leaves The Hobbit, Peter Jackson just, <laughs> He's still well, all right, it. I'll do it, fine. This is very much, uh, you know, Bill Murray thinking he was getting to work with the Coen brothers on Garfield. He was a little too late in the process to pull out. Yeah, I, and I think that in terms of this movie, it definitely has a lot of their quirks. Uh, for example, repetition. You know, there are a lot of phrases that are used, again, often to hilarious effect. Uh, sometimes not. <laughs> but it, it feels like a Coen Brothers movie. It actually reminded me a lot of Burn After Reading, watching it this time. Yeah, I haven't seen Burn After Reading since I saw it in the theater. And I remember not quite getting into that one. I don't know if I would feel differently if I saw it now. Yeah, I'm not a huge Burn After Reading fan, but the reason I bring that one up is because that movie, it has a lot of like crazy things happening, and then the government guys at the end are just kind of like, all right, that was a whole bunch of weird stuff. Let's just <laughs> move on. Like, it, you know, it tied itself up. Like, we don't have to do anything. Let's not mess with it. And yeah. that's what it feels like The Lady Killers is. It's another, like, uh, crime film that... You know, the bad guys take care of themselves, so uh, it's it's kind of like, all right, that was a wash. The movie fails to really amount to any significance by the end of it. But bef before we go jumping all the way to the conclusion, let's jump to the very beginning and just go through a quick summary of the movie. Uh, we open on the first shot, as I always like to look at the first shot and last shot of the film. Uh, the first shot is a heavenly sky, and we have Tom Hanks's name written in gold, as it should be. 
Uh, we tilt down, we see a raven on a gargoyle, which will call up some uh, Edgar Allan Poe imagery for, for later. We're kind of foreshadowing that. And then we continue our tilt down to see a barge and filled with garbage traveling to a garbage island. And from there, we crossfade into a church and we follow this, uh, this old lady, Marva Munson, as played by Irma P. Hall, as she goes from church to talk to the sheriff's office um, to complain about a noise complaint. They're playing some... Hippity hop. Some hippity hop. She's not, she doesn't care for that. She, they're playing a tribe called Quest. Uh, she mentions, I left my wallet in El Segundo yes. uh, often. Now, when you see the police station, it actually looks like a Wes Anderson kind of thing because it's this uh, rectangular building against the blue sky. So Not wide even, and so flat. It's very, like, picture book-esque. Did you have a... No. Just, oh, you just, <laughs> so you're just pointing that out? It was a Wes Anderson thing. I just <laughs> thought that was interesting. All right, I've got one of those coming up, so that's not that out of place, actually. Uh, but once we... So she gets home, we see she has her... Well, gun. she... Uh, um, okay, well, this movie... Uh, is actually a uh, remake right, of a we, film. We in, didn't mention that up front. Yeah, it's a remake of a film in 1955. It was an Ealing Company British comedy starring Alec Guinness and Peter Sellers. And in that movie, the old lady is this very brittle, frail white woman. And she, when she goes to the constable's office at the start, she is talking about a ufo that her neighbor saw so <laughs> she seems very uh kooky you know she's like oh she doesn't know what she's talking about she's it's obvious in the original that they're completely dismissive of her as a substantial witness of anything yeah she doesn't her opinion doesn't matter just okay go home placate her get her to go when it comes to this new movie uh she has a much stronger spine you know she this movie is very doused in like southern uh, African American gospel, like mm -hmm. that kind That's of the whole soundtrack landscape. So that the Irma P. Hall character in this new movie is very much like she'll whoop your ass, you know. So it's automatically with the first scene, it establishes a different dynamic than what uh, the original set out to do. Although I feel like the the movie still does the very similar thing where the sheriffs kind of dismiss her as like. All right, all right, Marva, get get. That's fine. Get, go on now. Mm -hmm. You you talk about your Bob Jones University some more because she's obsessed with sending five dollars a month to donate to Bob Jones University, uh, which is a Christian college. Which I guess which I guess I don't know if she knew, but didn't allow African American students until like the nineteen seventies. So I don't know if the movie's trying to say something about that because she kind of also comes off as, she, though she's very stern and has a spine, she's a little naive for. For obvious reasons. Yeah, maybe it's a commentary on how Christianity doesn't, you know, has all these things in the Bible that are, you know, counterintuitive to some of its followers, be it women or <laughs> yeah. too deep. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, but let's dive a little deeper, at least into the story, uh, just to get to this point here where she arrives home, we see she has a, uh, a dead husband, she's a widow, and this husband is... Uh, represented by this framed uh, painting of him, which fantastically changes expressions depending on what's happening during the movie. A nice little goofy touch I really enjoyed. Uh, she has a cat named Pickles that gets out the door when as soon as the very Sam Raimi-esque uh, 
uh, omen of the camera swooping and the shadow po- uh, showing up. Obviously, that was in the original, but I felt like the way the the candle uh, flicker, uh, flame flickered with the whooshing and everything, it felt very Sam Raimi as it was like very big and lacking in all subtlety when it was Tom Hanks as the professor arriving at this door. And this is a Tom Hanks like we've never seen him before. This is a, certainly a unique Tom Hanks performance. It almost has a foreshadowing element to uh, Cloud Atlas, it, you know? It does. Just going completely Dr. Seussian in terms of his verbiage. The key difference for me between this and Cloud Atlas for me is, whereas Cloud Atlas was very much a movie that was purported to be about very serious things. It had some very sincere things to say, and it just had this bizarrely uh, wacky juxtaposition with the way he he carried most of his characters. Um, This movie, he shows up, and he's Foghorn Leghorn. He's a Looney Tunes from the get-go, and the entire movie is filmed with this, this tone of this entirely wacky races cartoony vibe. So the performance is absolutely hamming it up, but it works for me within the movie's tone. I think that what frustrated me was that when he shows up on Merva, Merva's Marva, do- Marva, when he shows up on Marva's doorstep, the cat goes outside and he has to climb up a tree to get it and then he, the branch breaks under him. And it's like they've immediately established him as a boob. Like, in his very first scene. Yeah. In the original, they kind of play this little game of he's initially following the old lady at a distance, covered in shadow, and then when he arrives at her house, he kind of puts on this air of, like, oh, I'm just a friendly, kind old man. But then, you know, when he gets his hoods in the room, (laughs) he is very much like this man of action. But with this one, like, initially you almost think, like, okay, is Tom Hanks, like, putting on this act to, like, oh, I'm just a nice guy, doing it in a bizarre way. But, no, that's what his character is actually like the entire Yeah, time. you don't see any, uh, like, with, with a movie that's so much about secrets and posing to other people, you don't really see a different side of the professor. He never kind of loses his cool, and when he does, he still acts very much the same way, and... This incredibly southern dandy drawl he has, it's never an act. It's just, that's just the way he talks. I think Tom Hanks deserves some credit for, like, going out there because he really commits. He actually has this laugh. (laughs) That's it, yeah. (laughs) Like, he's hyperventilating or something for, like, a brief minute. There's There's a lot of front teeth from Tom Hanks in this movie. Yeah, I think that for him... With a lot of A-list movie stars, they kind of adhere to a single type, and this one is way outside the box for him. Like, I mean, this was one of the first time when Tom Hanks had really gone out on a limb like that, right? Well, certainly since... It was the first time Tom Hanks had gone out on a limb that wasn't a limb that he necessarily succeeded on. Yeah. Because you would go back to Philadelphia to the first big limb. Yeah, I'm talking like cartoony. Well, he uh, started out one. relatively cartoony. I guess with your true. splash, your bigs. This was this was kind of a jump. This is back. way this is way goofier than splash splash and big because those are like those are comedy. But they're leads, re- they're they're but very they're much like, real performances. They're grounded somewhat. Yeah. This one is on the moon, but again, I have to say that it works in the sense of the whole movie's on the moon. This is a live action cartoon. The camera movements have sound effects, mm-hmm. so 
it was hard for me to take the whole movie seriously and like be critical of the performance in that regard. I think you're absolutely right that in the original, they played it a lot more interestingly with the main character being slowly revealed the different sides of him. And especially that first scene when they, they have the cat go out right away, they kind of just cut the tension almost immediately. And I don't think you get it for a laugh. I think you kind of, I, I don't think Tom Hanks falling out of the tree was funny. No, and, and it's like it's just a debt. Well, it's and it's certainly it's like it's predictable at this point because the movie's, and it's just the beginning. But it's because it's such a cartoon. It's like how else could this scene end? Well, the thing of it is when the mo- the way the movie's structured in the beginning, it's kind of setting up like okay, this is going to be a story about this old lady and this man, and you. If you're looking at the first 10 minutes of the movie, you think, okay, this guy's a criminal. He's going to try and do this evil, bad, villainous stuff. And this old lady is going to get in his way. And so probably the old lady is going to be uh, serving him his comeuppance. You know, she's ultimately going to uh, unexpectedly defeat him. And it abandons that uh, <laughs> Pretty at quickly, the end. Yes. So it feels like when you were saying it, it feels like the movie doesn't really add up to anything. It's because the conflict it sets up in the first 10 minutes is just forgotten about. It's, it's more of, yeah, just like here's a framework, but the conflict uh, for why the capers go wrong is really comes from the team, the group of miscreants. So we have uh, four people, and they were introduced in four different uh, scenes, little vignettes. I think the only one of those that was really good was J.K. Simmons. The the vignettes or the characters? Um, wh- the or vignettes. Both. The vignettes. Vignettes. Uh, because I mean, you know, you have Marlon Wayans at the uh, casino boat. Uh, you have uh, the general at his donut shop. You didn't like you the general's at, introduction. Uh, what I'm what I'm saying is that um, between all those scenes and Ryan Hurst as the football guy getting hit in the helmet, those were all like. Okay, but J.K. Simmons is actually funny. J.K. Simmons' character, Mr. Pancake, and he's working on a dog food commercial. And this scene, to me, felt like the most Coen Brothers. J.K. Simmons is the MVP of this movie. Like, everything (laughs) he does in this movie is hysterical. Like, J.K. Simmons has a dog with a gas mask strapped to his face and, like, suffocating. Uh, Well, we we meet Mountain Girl, his his confidant, his other half, Um, this kind of behemoth with braids in her hair. And then, of course, we get a, a wonderful Bruce Campbell cameo as the... <laughs> Flirting with someone at the craft service yes. table. Like, that scene works so well. The rest of it, I mean, was there anything funny in, like, the Marlon Wayne scene, for instance? You know, I, I remember there's funny stuff in the casino with Marlon Wayne's, but it wasn't in that scene. Marlon Wayne's in this movie, he's doing his character from, like, a scary movie or Don't Be a Menace. I think Marlon Wayans doesn't come alive until he's with J.K. Simmons. Yeah, and that's that's one of the best parts of the movie is their conflict. They have this... Marlon Wayans is very incredulous about everything J.K. Simmons is doing. So uh, the first thing is when uh, J.K. Simmons brings Mountain Girl to the IHOP. Or no, the, no, 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 to the Waffle, the waffle Hut, hut which yeah. is one of the best scenes in the movie. <laughs> if only for Marlon Wayans' continued use of the line, You brought your bitch to the Waffle Hut? Like, he keeps saying that and, like, modulating his pauses. And he's just getting more and more frustrated. J.K. Simmons is getting more and more frustrated. And then you have Mountain Girl just standing there, like, 
uh, <laughs> it's wonderful, their chemistry. And then uh, the high point of their dynamic is <laughs> Tom Hanks is outside with Marva, and he's demonstrating to the team that, okay, we have these uh, incendiary ingredients. Don't worry, they're completely safe. Like, until you combine them, like, nothing's going to happen. You know, I can go ahead and just hit it with a hemp, smash cut to the outside, you hear a humongous explosion. Dad had me rolling on the floor. Like, I want to do a J.K. Simmons giving podcast at this point. All right. I invited you to be on my Tom Hanks podcast, and you've just been serenading J.K. Simmons the whole time. And he's great in this movie, but all of this is definitely demonstrative of the point that the conflict comes from within the group dynamic and doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the framework that the movie is set up within. It's not about Tom Hanks and his crew versus uh, the old lady, which is actually the conflict of the, the original lady killers. I mean, the original killers are kind of... It, they squabble among themselves they and wind up killing each other. They do that, too. They do that, too, but... And obviously, in the original, the thing that kind of ruins it is because of one of the workers, not the, not the lady. Um... But I think this movie did a lot better of, like, I cared more about the crew. I thought the crew was more interesting because everybody else in the, in the original movie was... Granted, the crew in this movie is, are absolute cartoon characters, but there was more... There's to more diversity. Each to them. I mean, more diversity, not only in actual diversity, but what their kind of characters were like. And everybody else was kind of the same in... Uh, the original 1955 one. So that was something I enjoyed. Just as an example of how I think this movie isn't put together very well, there's the scene where Marlon Wayne gets fired from the casino boat. Yes. And it's like, oh man, this is a big deal. Well, let's just give him a hundred bucks. <laughs> and so they give him a hundred bucks and he has his job back. And it's like, that's, that's not what you want in a heist movie. What you want to see is that um, he gets fired. That was good. And then you have to, like, change the game. You have to you figure have to out, get... like, okay, how can we get in there now that we don't have this uh, thing that we were, were relying you on? You gotta get J.K. Simmons to get a job there. Yeah, you gotta come up with something new. Or, like, yeah, J.K. Simmons has to dress as a clown or something. <laughs> I guess there aren't children on a riverboat. No. Uh, but you know what I mean. There has to be some kind of, like, all right, crap. Now we have to, like, rethink the plan. That's the fun thing about heist movies. Like, the plan never goes according to plan, and they have to improvise. And it, and it, it this, actually pretty much does in this movie, outside of the, the detonator not going off at the last minute. And, of course, the, I, the IBS acting up when they're stealing the actual money. And then they just flagrantly are walking around for 10 minutes in the Riverboat Casino, and nobody sees Yeah, J.K. Simmons has to go to the bathroom. And he's shouting um, almost that, about IBS the whole time. Okay, Marlon Wayne's biggest uh, laugh for me was when the the tunnel collapses with the dynamite and he finds himself like looking with the guard <laughs> and just like dead silence. Like you just fart. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that was funny. Like he nailed that, it. That one. That is how you do a fart joke. Strangely enough, uh, the almost the exact same fart joke from finding Nemo. Here, oh, two, with the birds. With the birds. Nice. That was a uh, year before. There you go. They stole it from Pixar as, <laughs> as you would. Cause it is the best. So uh, this movie came out uh, in 2004, this is around the era of, I think, a different transition in Tom Hanks's career because in the 90s, he was very much, you know, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, 
or like Tom Hanks, Oscar nominee, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, a, or like Tom Hanks, Toy Cowboy, you know, like he had kind of his zone that he was working in. And then once you get to the 2000s, I think it's probably because he was getting a little older that the main like roles that he was used to filling, he was kind of aging out of. He started being more experimental. This is two years after he did Road to Perdition mm -hmm. and he got a lot of acclaim for playing a bad guy. You know, yes. Um, this is a few years before. Actually, this is the same year as Polar Express, where he actually played like six or seven roles in that film. Something he must have enjoyed doing, because he does it later again in 2012 with Cloud Atlas. Yeah, he keeps uh, returning to that. But I even uh, Catch Me If You Can. He's not the main guy in that movie. He's like the pursuer. He's the the chaser. In this that. is true. This is kind of a signifier of a the third tier of Tom Hanks, if you will. Like we got the the early career, which is kind of like his more goofy comedies, comedies, the slightly romantic comedies. Um, <clears throat> but he's definitely a comedy actor. Mm -hmm. And then that has, takes the big turn with the the dramas, the Oscar nominated Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. That's through that leads us through the nineties. And then, yeah, you're right. This is sort of the the older ensemble Tom Hanks. Yeah. He still I'm, leads movies. Well, this is where he can do, like, the great Buck Howard and just pop in for a couple scenes. I've never seen that movie. But his son is the headliner in that one. Mm -hmm. He, yeah, so to, like, characterize it, it would be, like, B-list in the 80s, A-list in the 90s, and then... Like, once you get past uh, Castaway, it's just kind of... I wouldn't say slumming it. He's not slumming it by any no, means. No, and he's giving it all. It's more like he can... He, he's more malleable. Like, he's like, okay, I don't have to carry the movie in the same way that I used to. I can go out on a limb with this wild and wacky thing. Yeah, and it's almost like he can enjoy the movies a little bit more because he does... Either if he's an ensemble role, he has less to carry. Mm -hmm. Or in this movie, for example, he can just go balls to the wall nuts. Yeah, I now that I'm thinking about it, like the counterexample of this would probably be like uh, The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons. I feel like those movies, he's pretty much just like not really putting a lot of effort into it. Maybe I need to watch those movies again, but it seems more <laughs> like, hey, there's this is a big like $100 million Hollywood blockbuster based on a bestseller. Like, let's just kind of hit my marks and get well, out of well, here. Well, judge the the full performance of the Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code when we get to that on the podcast, of course. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right in that it is more, he's trying to be the leading man, but maybe this is, it's, it's similar to the kind of role he would have taken maybe in his earlier era, mm -hmm. and it's not working as successfully for him anymore. Maybe he just doesn't have the same interest. Or the, the same material. That's true, too. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, when you started doing this podcast, because Tom Hanks really means a lot to you. He means a lot to everyone, I think, if well, they think about it. He has a place in our hearts, for sure. For me, I was born in 1989, uh, the very tail end of 89. So Tom Hanks is one of those guys who was always a movie star to me. Mm -hmm. You know, like, he's just one of those dudes who's always been there. You know? Like, when Tom Hanks... Dies, not for a very long time. Don't, well, I but, can't believe you're even bringing this up on the Tom Hanks podcast. When he shuffles off this mortal coil, it'll feel like one of those pillars that I founded like cinema with is just That's why he, falling down. He's the patron know? saint of cinema. Yeah, and it's, it's just interesting that for me, 
um, like I saw most of his big movies as they were coming out, you know. So whereas there are other stars like uh, Bruce Campbell, for example, where I remember exactly like, oh yeah, I remember the night I saw The Evil Dead. You, and you I can was recall like, discovering this star. Yeah, I can remember discovering Bruce Campbell. Or but, I can remember like, um, to use a more recent example, like getting to Joseph Gordon-Levitt and being like, oh man, look at this guy. Like there was a year where he just like, took off you, you know? he exploded it's like i mean i saw him when he was a little baby on third rock from the sun but like mm -hmm. here i was there when it happened yeah and with tom hanks as you're saying like he's always been there he is a rock he's a foundation of what movies mean to you as a person yeah and i mean the unfortunate thing about hollywood nowadays is that it caters so much to the young like if tom hanks was operating in the like 1940s or 1950s he would have like Oscar quality scripts every year, you know, because cinema is still working in a manner that would adhere to a great actor such as himself. Well, don't write off our boy. He's got a Steven Spielberg movie coming out this year. He's not done by any means. But when you listen to Steven Spielberg and George Lucas talking about how, you know, Steven Spielberg almost didn't get Lincoln to the theaters. It almost went to like an HBO That's true. channel or something. Like, Tom Hanks is, he probably has to fight to get movies like Bridge of Spies financed. You're really bringing down <laughs> the fun I'm saying here that, like, on the Tom Hanksgiving podcast, Elliot. No, I'm just saying that, like, Tom Hanks, like, he's... Is this what you do on your podcast? You're just kind of a bummer? Superhero movies are, are dying, and it's, it's terrible. I think that, no, I'm just, like, I'm saying what it is. Like, Tom Hanks, now, if you look at the highest grossing movies, they're superhero movies they're pixar cartoons you know tom hanks is in pixar cartoons <laughs> he is he is i think that it's really cool that he'll he'll take the time to make a movie like larry crown you know i can't wait till we get to that movie <laughs> i can't wait to hear you talk about larry <laughs> crown because i you know larry crown like regardless of his quality tom hanks is someone who's like you know what i want to make a movie about you know an ordinary person who's having these struggles in life you know that the mainstream audience can relate to. Like, I really like going to see Captain America in theaters every year, but I can't really relate to what Steve Rogers is going through. You can? He's just trying to get a date with the girl he likes. Yeah. That's why we relate to Steve Rogers. Trying to be a good man. On a micro level. But, you know, once I get, like, 30 years older, I'm going to be right aligned with what Tom Hanks is feeling. <laughs> You're going to be Larry crowning it with the best of them. Okay, we have gotten very, very off track. We haven't talked about the lady killers in a... In quite a long time. That's okay. It's all been Tom Hanks talk. But uh, to bring it back home here, uh, we never talked about the very end of the film where it kind of ends on this uh, shot of Pickles the cat returning with the finger to drop it off as we've dropped off all the bags of dirt, all the bodies, onto the barges beneath the bridge. And they take him off and we end on this shot of the garbage island, which is uh, so disgusting. Is it the afterlife? Isn't... <laughs> I think, I think it's talking about um, they make in that very large church scene we talked about before that took up as bizarrely a large amount of screen time. Um, the reverend is discussing about how people are worshiping the false god, the idol, and uh, it's essentially talking about materialism and compares the garbage island to the f kind of wrong pursuits in life. And obviously, these crooks all end up there because they're pursuing the wrong things in life. The movie has that kind of statement about it. But 
I don't know if it's actually because of the weird complications with uh, the um, Bob Jones University implications and nobody actually believing uh, Marva Munson. Do you feel like there's something else going on with what the movie's trying to be, trying to say? Is this just another burden after reading where it's like, this this was completely pointless, there was nothing to it? Or is it actually trying to advocate this better living through, if not God, a spiritual sense of right and wrong, a moral life? Well, they definitely put a lot in there, whether it's from the pastor at the church or Tom Hanks's poetry. I feel like the Coen brothers were putting in that southern gospel kind of mentality to it uh, but was whether, it just lip service or is it actually intended to be resonant it was it was probably put in there for a purpose like it was put in there it certainly to, colors the movie in a certain way yeah it has an atmosphere it has an affectation yeah i think that what we're supposed to see is tom hanks for example he presents himself as this very proper gentleman like somebody who is distinguished, you know? He talks with a very effete vocabulary, a lot of uh, distinct words and terms. Like, he presents himself as a gentleman of the first rate. But once you get into the way his mind working, like, he's just trying to steal some money and run off, you know? And it's something where ultimately uh, he's killed by God, you know? A deus machina death. That's true. It's functional of the kind of thematics of the plot. So I guess it's there. It's it's a little weak sauce, I'm going to say. Yeah. But it's there. And uh, yeah, I guess we should all strive to be better people and not so materialistic. Yeah. And we shouldn't wear white after Labor Day. Mm, that was his true crime. So that is The Lady Killers. Yeah, I mean, J.K. Simmons is like, man. He No, J.K. Simmons definitely wins this movie. He's fantastic. Guy's hilarious. It, it's so strange because it's almost... Here, here's what I would say. Tom Hanks, when he goes off on his monologues, like it would be very easy to get distracted. Every time J.K. Simmons talks, I was riveted. <laughs> I'm not saying J.K. Simmons is a better actor than Tom Hanks. We're not even... I'm, I'm saying with the material... That comparison. With the material that they were given with this particular script... Like, J.K. Simmons hit a home run, and Tom Hanks got a base hit. Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can attest to J.K. Simmons definitely is electric in this movie, and he's the reason you'd want to watch it. Tom Hanks' performance as the professor is nutty. It's cartoony, but in a way that matches the tone of the movie. And I think it's, it's, it's fascinating to see him go so bizarre. And, again, it, it's similar to some of the professory characters from Cloud Atlas. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Dr. Henry Cloud... Goose, I think. Yeah, I have the one that rem, rem, has the most invites the most comparison. Yeah, I haven't seen Cloud Atlas in several years, but when I was listening to your podcast and you were talking about Dr. Goose, I'm like, I got it. I still need to google it. I need to see what he looks like because for from what I understand, it was like nails on a chalkboard to you. It was it was it was goofy and wacky in much the same way, but Again, it, it was because of the context of the movie around him. Whereas this was just a kind of Ocean's Eleven meets Looney Tunes caper, it worked because it was all big and campy and silly. You know what would be interesting? If you cut up a couple movies like 
uh, the Lady Killers and, I don't know, Sleepless in Seattle and Cast Away and just edited them together into a Cloud Atlas, like... <laughs> just this merging of Tom Hanks movies, the to- different Tom Hankses over the over the timeline. If you take the Lady Killers, his performance is so bizarre that you just like line up against like Dr. Robert Langdon in The Vinci Code, and um, uh, John Bigston in Biggs. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot his name. Was Joshua Bill. Baskin. <laughs> Joshua Baskin. Come on. <laughs> Like, if you just do the Tom Hanks scenes, you could splice this into Cloud Atlas. And that, yeah, that's, like, that's, you wouldn't even notice. That's also true. This could just be easily another timeline from Cloud Atlas. Um, all we need is Jim Broadbent and uh, Hugo weaving in a wig. Doesn't every movie need that, though? No. No <laughs> movie needs that, in fact. There's, there's one too many movies with that. All right. So that was our discussion on 2004's The Lady Killers. Did you like the movie more than we did? Did you think the original was way better? Let us know. Follow us on the Twitter, at Tom Hanks Pod. You know what? Follow me on my personal account, at Elvis Kunish. Uh, I say some pretty funny stuff uh, on there every now and again. Um, and let us know what's uh, what's going on. Uh, what you think about all this stuff. Uh, write to us at TomHanksPod at gmail.com for any longer questions. Uh, and, uh, yeah... That's all for this week. Next week, we're doing 1987's Dragnet. Tom Hanks, Dan Aykroyd. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for, for coming on talking about it. Thank you for having me. Do you have uh, anything to plug? Where can yeah. we find you? So you can find me on Twitter at Escape ELL, and then I also do uh, two other podcasts. Whoa, Whoa! This guy is a podcast uh, tycoon. Machine. Uh, tycoon one... is better. <laughs> One is uh, called Beyond School. It is an audio play about two teenage girls who investigate sci-fi mysteries at their high school. And it's then, awesome. It's sort of like Veronica Mars meets Doctor Who. And then uh, the second one is called Superhero Sampler, which is uh, me and John Brickley, who was on the uh, Punchline the previous episode. podcast. Uh, we just drop into different superhero TV shows, and uh, we just uh, describe the scenes to each other. And uh, I get down about the sorry state of superhero movies. So check it out. Uh, you should have fun. Elliot, if um, Tom Hanks was to be cast as a superhero, which superhero would he be? You know, I feel like in this era, he would be more like Robert Redford in The Winter Soldier. Let's you, know? say he like, can be, you can pick young, young era Tom Hanks. Okay. Hmm. Young Tom Hanks. Oh, you know what he could do? Captain Marvel. Because Captain Marvel is about this boy, Billy Batson, who when he says Shazam, turns into a superhero, a grown-up superhero. It's big, but as a superhero. There you go. There you go. Tom Hanks, we fell in love with you, Tom Hanks, just like so many do deeply. Because you made us smile, and you're great on screen style, so that's why we give thanks. Cause you got a friend in Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks. Interesting how you find certain aspects of this movie funny, but you don't really care for the burbs. <laughs> here's, here's what it is. The burbs has a character on the sidelines who is shouting constantly like, the suburbs are great. It's better than going to the movies. Look how funny this stuff is. 
Which is the death of comedy. To have somebody uh, pointing to stuff and see, saying, like, saying. this is really, really funny. You don't like Corey Feldman. I get it. <laughs> I get it. You have a personal vendetta against Corey Feldman. Donatello is my least favorite Ninja Turtle.